0: For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, our speaker today is Stephen McGinnis. He's a minister with RUF, that's the Reformed University Fellowship. Um, Stephen has, is married, has two children, and he has been an RUF staff for since 2011, and he's been serving the Emory campuses since 2013. And he will be sharing the word with us today. Thank you uh, for the invitation to be here. This is a real honor. Uh, that music was incredible. Thank you, uh, music team, for leading us in that worship. Uh, to give a little bit of context to the passage that was just read, and I'm going to pray. Uh, we are looking at this, this really short passage in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I probably um, don't need to go too much into this, but the beginning of Matthew right deals with the birth of of uh, Jesus and his baptism, uh, temptation where he is taken into uh, the wilderness or into the desert by Satan, and he is tempted. Uh, and interestingly enough, one of the things I find interesting about the temptation of Jesus, uh, which we find in chapter 4, is that towards the end of that temptation, it's interesting that Satan tries to tempt Jesus ...with all of the kingdoms. Uh, for example, in verse 8... ...again the devil took him to a very high mountain... ...and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I... ...Satan here... ...all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And so it's interesting that here he has promised all of the kingdoms of the world. And yet he turns them down for what? Well, we find later in chapter 4... That in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He turns down the kingdoms of earth in order to give us his own kingdom. So there he's, he's uh, being tempted and then he moves into ministry and he's starting to preach and to teach and to perform all sorts of miracles. And so he starts to gather a following and we find really sort of the first teaching that we have other than repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably a sermon that he preached a number of different places and a number of times. Here in the book of Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Elsewhere, it's also called the Sermon on the Plain. Again, it's probably a message, a sermon that he would have preached even over and over again. And so that uh, sort of takes us to this passage that was just read in verses 17 through 20. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for having us here this morning. You're good to us in ways that we don't even understand, that it's hard for us to fathom. I pray that you would be good to us uh, now this morning through your word, that you would feed us uh, our, our hearts and our minds and our spirits, Lord, that we would worship you well. And uh, Lord, help us to see this text and the beauty of it, how it changes us. Uh, how it changes history. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a well-known parable that maybe some of you have heard before about a girl and a ham. And it goes something like this that there was there was this little girl and her mom was preparing a ham. And so in order to bake it, she cuts off the two ends, she sticks it into the pan and she puts it into the oven. And the little girl sort of asked her mom, "Why why did you do that? Why did you cut the ends of the ham off?" And she said, "Well, uh, I, I don't know, that's just how my mom did it. And so a little bit later, the grandmother was there at the house, and she was still curious, and so she says, Grandma, Mom baked a ham, and she cut the ends off, uh, off of it before she did that and put it in the oven. And she said that she did that because that's how you did it. And I'm curious, why, why, do, you, why do you cut the ends of the ham off? And she says, well, that's a good question. That's uh, just what I've always done. That's how my mother did it. So this little girl gets really curious, and she decides to call her great-grandmother. And, uh, hey, great-grandmother, mom uh, baked this ham the other day. She cut the ends off, and she stuck it in the oven. She baked it. I didn't know why she did it. I asked her. It's, uh, she said it's because that's what her mom did, so I asked grandma. And she said that the only reason why she did that is that's because what you did. And so I'm asking you, when you bake a ham and cut the ends off, why do you cut the ends of the ham off? And the grandmother answers, she says, oh, yes, yes, yes. The ham would never fit into my pan, and so I had to cut the ends off of it just in order to get it into the oven. Now, believe it or not, most of us have family practices that really don't make sense other than that they've just been handed down to us. They're just sort of tradition. Whether they have a good origin or a bad origin, sometimes doesn't matter. It's just the way that things are done. And so when we come to this passage, I've been thinking a lot actually about these verses, especially the last couple of weeks. I just got back from Israel last week. And I actually had the privilege of sharing a devotion uh, from the Sermon on the Mount right next to the Sea of Galilee. It was a, a really incredible experience. But as I was there and as I was around Uh, sort of regular Orthodox Jewish people and ultra-Orthodox Jewish people, Reformed and Conservative and Secular, but especially the Orthodox, especially the ultra-Orthodox. And I realized that there are a lot of Jewish people that sort of still practice in similar ways that the Jews would have been practicing here at the time of Jesus. But it sort of became more real to me as I considered this text that Jesus seems to be turning a lot of things on their head, a lot of things that seem to be so good and traditional. He, He starts to unend them, and it makes people nervous. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' initiating teaching, and he shows up doing and saying things that are unconventional, saying and doing things that people are not used to. It seems that he's opposing their tradition, and that made people nervous. And so people started seeing that there was a difference with this person named Jesus. He earned a reputation, or started to earn a reputation, of undermining the Scripture, of undermining tradition, even changing it. But he's actually not. It's to the contrary, we're about to see, that he's uh, actually fulfilling it. He's lifting it up. And we are going to see how Jesus both affirms a high view of the Old Testament and at the same time elevates it to be something more beautiful, um, more true in a sense, more realistic, uh, more attainable. And he starts by talking about how he fulfills it. So I really want to just do two things this morning, and that is to talk about how Jesus fulfills the law for us, and then second, how that law leads us to him, to Christ. So first, how does Jesus actually fulfill the law? Last year was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. And years before that, about 55, 56 years ago, we have the uh, famous MLK speech, I Have a Dream. He gave it in front of 250,000 people in Washington. And if you've ever heard the speech or if you ever have uh, read the speech, it's really interesting how he weaves in all of these references from the Bible and from the Constitution. And one of the things that King was doing is that he was appealing to a vision where people would not be judged on the basis of the color of their skin. And as I was sort of thinking about the 50th anniversary, especially Last year, but even into this year, I thought to myself, like, do you know actually what the dream really was? Or even what a dream really is? It is a longing for something that seems broken, for something that uh, is not right to be made whole. The dream that MLK had was a longing for fulfillment, a longing for fulfillment. And it moved people because it envisioned a reality where the sadness and suffering of racism was done away with, where it would be no more. And in a sense, the law was like a dream, actually envisioning a way to make a sinful, broken, messed up people whole with their God, right with their God. That the shattering of peace would be restored to true shalom. There was a longing that the law would undo everything that was wrong with the world. But there was a problem. And what was the problem? It seemed like it wasn't working. Because people couldn't keep it. They kept failing. They kept falling. And so what did they do? They doubled down on it. Maybe it's not enough. Let's add to it. Let's create more rules. Let's create more laws. Let's make righteousness even harder to attain than the law even makes it. And then you have this person Jesus who comes on to the scene saying that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the law and of the prophets. It was a it was a paradigm shift. It was radical. It was really crazy. Because you see the law before Jesus was a picture. It was a standard of righteousness And it was a standard and a picture of God's character, but it was unattainable on its own. No one could reach it. No one could grasp it. It only reminded people of the need for perpetual repentance and perpetual atonement. Christianity teaches that Jesus actually fulfills that need. But why was it needed? Look again at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there has been a lot of debate on this over the last 2,000 years about what it means to actually fulfill the law, to fulfill the Old Testament. How does Jesus fulfill the law? How does he fulfill the prophets? Now, in some ways, fulfillment of something that was said of old is not a foreign concept to us. If you've ever read Harry Potter, for example, right? It's very clear from the beginning that there is something that Harry Potter is going to fulfill. And all you're doing is sort of waiting for that story to unfold so you can see how he fulfills it. Or Lord of the Rings is another sort of fantasy fiction um, piece of literature, right? Aragorn and Frodo, you know that they are going to fulfill something, but what is it? But there's a difference here when it comes to Jesus. Yes, the prophets foresaw the coming Messiah. That's very clear. But Jesus goes beyond that, just sort of simple, here I am, I've come, I've arrived on the scene, with actually fulfilling, with being the law itself. The law was a group of commandments telling people how to live according to God. How to fulfill the standard of righteousness. And so it's strange that Jesus shows up and he says, I'm these things, I'm these laws, I'm these, uh, the, all these things that the prophets have talked about. For example, imagine, I was going to pick on Pastor Young and now he's here. Probably shouldn't do this, but... Um, <laughs> Imagine that Pastor Young decides that he wants to run for uh, the presidency of the United States of America, and so he starts to put together a campaign. And so he says, "I'm I'm Pastor Young. I am the fulfillment of the U.S. Constitution." And his speech goes something like, "People often ask me what is my view of America. What is my view of the Constitution?" I tell you, I am the Constitution, right? Like, if people heard that, that would be weird. People wouldn't know what to do with a president that claimed to be the Constitution because the Constitution points to how something is supposed to be structured, how something is to be played out, how people are supposed to live, how uh, people are supposed to behave in community with their neighbors. But for somebody to show up and say, I am the Constitution, he wouldn't make it very far in his bid to be president. It would be strange. It would be weird. So what is Jesus getting at when he shows up on the scene and he says, in essence, I'm the constitution. I'm the law. I'm the commandments. I'm the prophets. I have this quote. I should have sent it to have it in the the bulletin. I'm just going to try to listen as I read this from Frederick Bruner in his commentary on Matthew. What is Jesus getting at? Listen to what Bruner says here. He has not come, Jesus, to set Hebrew scripture aside, or to make it less important, he's come to fulfill it, which literally means, and listen to this, which literally means to fill it full. I love what he does there. What does it mean to fulfill? It means to fill it full. By obedience, his and his disciples, and by teaching its deeper meanings, to set it fully on its feet. So to fulfill The Old Testament is to fill it full. You see, he fulfills it ultimately by doing it. And as we will see in a moment, that fulfillment of him doing it, of him filling it full, is then applied or transferred or given to the believer. To the one who puts their faith in this Messiah. Jesus, and I want to be clear about this, especially in this day and age, Jesus has such a glorious view of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, being the law and the prophets, is just as crucial to the gospel as the New Testament because it tells the story of Jesus and how he would do what Adam and every human after could not do, which is basically to not rebel against God and to keep the law. And one of the applications or questions I think that this Text make us ask is, do we have as high of a view of the Old Testament as Jesus? There's a theologian from the fourth century, St. Augustine, who said that if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And I think that this is why Jesus amps it up in verses 18 and 19, and then he says something difficult in verse 20. Let me just read those again. After he talks about this fulfillment, look at how he amps it up. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them Will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, how does the law lead us to Christ? Well, for one thing, who can stand according to the standard that Jesus sets in verse 20? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. They set the highest standard humanly possible when it came to the law of God. And here is Jesus saying that unless you live up to that standard, you will never see the kingdom of God. In order to explain this, especially when it comes to students, one of the ways that I try to do that is to have them imagine them showing up in let's say a chemistry class and the professor saying to them that in order to pass the chemistry class They cannot miss one single question on any quiz, on any exam. They can't get any marks off of any paper. They have to have perfect scores all the way across the board. And if they can't pass that course, they can't go on to study anything else at Emory University. That, in a way, is what is being said here. Who would go on and graduate from Emory University? It would be very, very few, if any at all, if the standard was absolute perfection. If the standard was, you can't mess up on anything, who can stand? No one. I mean, just narrow all of this down to the Ten Commandments. Or we're going to narrow, narrow it down even more, as Jesus does, right? And says that all of the law and the prophets, in other words, all the Old Testament, boils down to how you love God and how you love neighbor. So whether you want to do just the Ten Commandments or whether you want to take it down to those two Or to Jesus later, who says it's even boiled down to how you love your neighbor? Because how you love your neighbor reflects how you love God. But narrow it down. Who here has not broken any of those commandments in the last week? Maybe even in the last day. I know that I haven't. Because the law exposes a deep, deep need for saving, for rescue, for redemption, for atonement. It exposes neediness. It's interesting, by the way, that the very first beatitude that we are given by Jesus is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who are spiritually broken, who are spiritually in poverty. And who, who cannot uh, find means in and of themselves. And so, write Isaiah, come to me and buy those of you who do not have money. Who here is not broken, messed up? Who can live up to this standard? We are all commandment breakers. And by the way, one of the things that I try to communicate to my students, and I know it's communicated here, is that a community of believers is healthy to the degree that everyone sees themselves as lawbreakers, that everyone sees themselves as commandment breakers. It's only as healthy as they see themselves as poor in spirit and needy and broken that evil lurks around the corner. I was sharing after going to the Holocaust Museum in in Jerusalem, which broke me for a number of days just considering what transpired. And the students were really struggling, actually, with it. And so I went back and looked at Genesis 4, right, from, from the very beginning, right after the fall. Brother against brother. Cain rises up and, slays, uh, and slays, uh, slays Abel. And it's interesting that God comes to him and invites him to consider what he's doing. Why are you angry? He asks Cain. But one of the things that's interesting is later he says that um, sin is crouching. Sin is crouching at your door. And if you know anything about predators, like a predatory animal, what is one of the things that they do before they attack They make themselves small? Have you ever come across a rattlesnake, which I have on a couple of different occasions? They don't, like, lay themselves out and make themselves known. They coil up. They make themselves small so that you can't see them, so that you don't know that it's there. But it is. There's a show that is filmed here in Atlanta called uh, Stranger Things. And maybe some of you have seen it. Um, it. One of the reasons I love it is, you know, I grew up in the 80s as a, as a child. And so it takes me back to, to some of those days. It's really interesting. But the show is about a group of young friends who discover that there's this dark, evil thing, monster, that is trying to destroy their town. But the monster uh, lives in basically the, this thing called the Upside Down um, is that the name? I think it's called Upside Down, um, and it's trying—it's trying to destroy the town. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that there are only a few people who really know that it's there. And as they're trying to convince other people, they're just kind of seen—they're seen as crazy, right? How could something like that even exist? But they're trying to defeat it. They're trying to get other people on board. They want to bring it to an end. But not many people really know what is going on. Well, in season two, there's this, this new character that shows up on the scene named Mad Max is her name. And uh, some of the guys, in the, the, the young guys in this group, young boys, they want to be friends with her. And they, she can tell that they're kind of holding something back. And so eventually, one of them tells her what is going on. And she, of course, just completely dismisses it. Like, you're crazy. There couldn't be anything like that going on, and she doesn't doesn't believe them. Until finally, one of them invites her on a mission where she is going to be exposed, hopefully, that's at least what he wants to happen, so that she'll believe him. And then it does happen. Evil rears its head right in front of Mad Max, and she is shocked. And then she is changed. And in that show... Every time someone is exposed to this reality, this evil thing, all of a sudden they can't not do something. They have to do something about it. They actually come together in order to fight against this thing. The law acts like that for us. It is that friend that invites us on a mission to show us that there is something wrong, something broken, something lurking inside of us, something crouching at the door. And on that mission, the law sort of reveals it. And once it reveals it, there's no going back. You cannot just go on living as things were. It changes you. You cannot not do something. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, 23 through 26. Before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, so a good thing, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Wow, what is he saying here? The law does two things. That number one, it shows us our need for Christ. And secondly, that it shows us that Christ himself is the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment in a way even of the need. And that faith is the means for applying that fulfillment to us. How? Well, it's actually through his obedience. I, I, I read earlier from the Bruner quote that when Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, it means that he came to fill it full. He came to fill a full through his obedience. In everything that he said, and everything that he did, in every way that he served other people, he filled full the demands of the law. And that's his, what we call his active obedience, the totality of everything that he said and did in complete adherence to the law. And through faith and repentance, that obedience that Jesus accomplishes and maybe this is old hat, but we need to be reminded of it over and over again, at least I do. That obedience that Jesus does, his filling full the law of God, is applied to the believer so that every way that Jesus was obedient, every way that he filled the law full, is given to us if you belong to Jesus through faith. But then, secondly, so you have his active obedience to the law, and then, secondly, you have his passive obedience. And his passive obedience is his receiving the full wrath of God on the cross as penalty for the breaking of the law. So we have his law that is active, that goes forward, that does all of the the demands of the law. And then we have the receiving obedience or the passive obedience that he takes on the penalty for lawbreakers, which is everyone, it's all of us. And again, both of those, both the active and the passive, obedience of Christ is transferred, it is given, it is imputed to the believer through faith. That's life. That is life, and how does it change us? I'm going to read you one more quote from Bruner as we start to wrap this up. Only Jesus' obedience, of course, fully satisfied the law of God. The obedience of Jesus' followers is a grateful obedience to an already fulfilled law, so grateful that they would now like that fulfillment to have some fruit in them. To put this interpretation in a picture, because of Jesus' successfully fulfilled work, The law is no longer over disciples like a threatening hammer. It is now under them like an honoring red carpet. Let me read that again. Because of Jesus' successfully fulfilled work, the law is no longer over disciples like a threatening hammer. It is now under them like an honoring red carpet. Do you see the beauty there? That before, when we're exposed to the law, a lot of times the only thing that it produces is guilt and shame. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not good enough. Even in your own relationships with other people, if you knew how bad I was, you would run away. You wouldn't love me. So let me cover all of this up with perfection or perfectionism so that you don't really see the real me. We're not willing to be vulnerable with other people, and we're not willing to be vulnerable with God. I've been thinking over the last couple of months especially, especially about shame, that When it comes to repentance, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what Jesus says. I've been, in the past, I used to think to myself that repentance, I'm going off script here, um, that repentance basically just meant I need to tell Jesus my sins and then everything's going to be okay. But as I've been really contemplating this, I think that it's more than that, that true repentance is being completely vulnerable before God. Laying yourself out there in all of your shame, and all of your guilt, and saying, this is who I am. This is how messed up I am. Will you stay? At the end of this service, one of the things that I'm going to say is the ironic benediction, right? The Lord bless you and keep you, may he make his face to shine upon you. What does that mean for God's face to shine upon us? I used to think that that meant that you would just be materially blessed. Kids are going to be healthy. You're going to have money in the bank. You're going to have a house or an apartment to live in, a car to drive around in. May his face shine upon you and you be blessed. When God's face is shining upon you, it is shining upon you like a father's face taking joy in his child. Can you honestly say that when you imagine God's face shining upon you, that you don't cower in shame? Because that's often what I do. When I really think about God looking at me, I just want to run away. Don't look at me. And yet Jesus here, when he says that he fulfills the law, invites us into this reality. That we can stand before God in purity and perfection and perfect obedience so that his face can shine upon us with joy. And that we don't have to cower in shame and guilt. It is only because we live through the obedience of Christ that we can experience obedience ourselves. He not only gives life, he shows us how to do it. Uh, I went to college in Colorado, and I love to ski. And a couple of years ago, I took the kids sort of like full, true skiing up in the Colorado mountains, and they did lessons. And we finally, after a couple of days of lessons, we finally took them up a ski lift onto like a, a, a blue run, which is intermediate level. And even though they had taken lessons, there was still this, they, they would sort of ski down and, and just fall over. Like they knew how to plow their skis a little bit, if you've ever been skiing. But there was still a struggle there of knowing how to actually do it. And so one of the things that I would have to do is I would, after they get up the ski lift, they would start going down, I would ski up right behind them, and I would, I would basically pick them up a little bit. They're five. It's, it's getting harder and harder to do this, but I would I would pick them up and I would literally set their skis inside of my skis, because one of the things that I wanted them to do is that I wanted them to learn that when I move that they would feel how it, how it feels to move skis, so that because theirs are literally inside of mine, that when I turn their skis, I'd pick them up a little bit and their skis would turn with me and we'd go to the left, and then I would pick them up just a little bit but that, so they were still skiing, their skis were still touching the snow, and I would turn to the right a little bit, and their skis would move just in sync with my skis, and we would go back and forth and back and forth. Their skis inside of my skis, their bodies up against my body. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, right? Because any analogy ultimately falls apart when it comes to comparing union with Jesus Christ, but that's the Christian life that we are taken up with him, that we are taken up in him, so that as he obeys, as, um, both passively and but particularly actively, as he obeys, we obey with him. As he moves, we move with him. As he loves, we love with him. The impossibility of living before God is made possible because Jesus takes us into himself through his death. And through his resurrection, and if we ever lose that truth, that reality, we lose everything in the gospel. And the fact is that we can move towards God and others because Jesus moves toward us. And because he moves towards his father. We fulfill the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. But I really just want to close ultimately with this, that we will never experience the beauty of that, the wonder of it, the majesty of it, unless we allow the law to show us our need. And I want to end by encouraging you, and I didn't know this was going to be in here, but, and I don't know who picked this, but this uh, in your handout, treasures from the internet. I think that's great. Um, Weakness, the doorway to true strength. We'll never experience the beauty of Jesus fulfilling the law of his perfect obedience until we allow it to show us our need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I hope that sometime this week, you will read through this from David Pallison as he talks about the way, the, the way to strength is actually through weakness, because that's exactly what Jesus did. And so I hope as you consider this and you realize all the ways in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and fulfills the law that you will see its beauty in showing you your deep, 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 utter need for him. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me close. Father, thank you for something so paradigm shifting as these four verses. Of course we didn't do it justice in this time. But I pray that we just at least in scratching the surface, that we would allow the wonder of your son, filling full your law, that we would allow that to sink into our hearts in a way that helps us love you more, in a way that helps us love others more, in a way that reveals a deep need that we have, and through that need that we will love others through their needs. I pray that for this church, for this community, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.